You're listening to the Mindful Weight Loss Podcast, Episode 15. It's time to look at weight loss in a whole new way. Instead of focusing on calories in, calories out, you'll learn how to use your brain to transform your body and heal your relationship with food. If you're ready to lose your weight for the last time, you're in the right place. Because it's more than what you eat. It's who you are when you're eating. This is the Mindful Weight Loss Podcast. Here's your host, life and weight loss coach, Dr. Michelle Tupman. You know, I struggle with overeating and I also struggle with overspending. Both of those are things for me. And the two seem to go hand in hand for a lot of other women I coach as well. And when you think about it, it makes sense. We've talked a lot on the podcast already about this concept of symbolic substitutes, these external things that we look for to help us provide emotional anesthesia when the emotions that we're facing are just too much to handle. And so just as it's easy to turn to chocolate cake when you're sad or bored, it's easy to whip out the credit card when you're stressed or lonely or angry as well. And The mechanisms for overcoming this are the same. Just as I'm teaching you how to feel your feelings to solve for the overeating, we can also learn to feel our feelings to solve for the overspending. And it's not that spending money is bad per se. No, it's spending money unintentionally when you're feeling out of control and when you're spending money only to make yourself feel better right? There's a difference between buying an awesome pair of shoes because you've had your eye on them for a while and you've made the decision to buy them versus you see this awesome pair of shoes and you're having a really crappy, crappy day and you know you're just going to feel better if you buy them, right? There's a difference there. And I think sometimes it's a little bit more difficult for us to talk about money, right? It's easier for us to talk about weight. There are weight loss programs all over the internet, on commercials, on TV. All of your friends have experience with dieting. But we as women tend not to talk about money as much. And so for that reason, I wanted to bring on a guest to the podcast to help us open up this conversation around money. Today, I'm bringing you an interview with the lovely Bonnie Koo. Bonnie Koo is a certified life coach, a physician, and the founder of Wealthy Mom MD. She's a proud graduate of the Bernard College and Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons. Her mission is to help women create wealth and rewrite history. She's the host of the Wealthy Mom MD podcast and author of Defining Wealth for Women, Peace, Purpose, and Plenty of Cash, debuting the fall of 2021. So let's get to it. Here's the interview with Dr. Bonnie Koo. Well, why don't we get started, Um, Bonnie? How about you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a money coach? Thanks for that question. So a bit about me, let's see. It's like the boring stuff, the interesting stuff. I mean, I guess the normal facts is my name is Bonnie, as you said, and I currently live in New Jersey, just outside of New York City. I think I'm still a little upset that I don't live in New York City anymore, but that's a whole nother story. And I'm a physician like you, and I'm a board-certified dermatologist. And I became a money coach, I guess. You know, it's funny because people ask me all the time, like, when did you start doing this? And it just kind of depends on when I define when I started my business because it was kind of a hobby. But I guess you could say I started this January of 2017-ish. 
Yeah, that's about that's about when I started. And it's not like I woke up one day and was like, I'm going to become a coach. It was more like I was bored because I started a new job and the new job wasn't busy because I didn't have enough patients to see. So what that really meant was I had a lot of time to scroll on Facebook. And that was around the time when Facebook groups were really <laughs> exploding. And I was relatively mm-hmm. new attending at the time. So I was just learning about all the groups specifically for female physicians. So I found myself in mm-hmm. a, one of the groups. And it was a group where we talked about money. And like I said, I had a lot of free time scrolling. And I was just learning myself about money in the past year or two. So I started answering everyone's questions. And I guess to sort of fast forward, then I started a blog where I talked about money. Then I started working with a coach, although I've worked with coaches for a long time. So I knew what a life coach was like 20 years ago when no one knew what it was. Now it's like, it's not mainstream, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely more mainstream than it is was back then. And then I realized that was a missing link, right? Like I could teach people how to do a 401k or the mechanics, but really the missing link was how you think about money and what you believe is possible about money. And so then I became certified and then the business kind of evolved more Mm -hmm. into a coaching business versus like an educator. It's funny how coaching becomes the missing link for so many of the struggles that we face as women. I know the same is very true when it comes to weight and our relationship with food, is that if you're focusing on, you know, the diet or the nutrition piece, just like if you're focusing on, you know, the debt or the the dollar amount piece without addressing the thoughts and the mind work behind it, you almost get stuck in a hamster wheel of of worry and anxiety and never really solving your problems. But there was, was there a reason that you decided to coach on money specifically? I'm trying to think what the answer is. I don't really think I have an answer to that. I don't think it was anyone's actually asked me, why did you do money? I think because I was learning about it myself and it's something I've struggled with my whole life. And I actually feel like I still struggle with it. And I used to think that was a problem. Like, well, if I'm coaching on this, I should have I should have it all figured out and I should be super rich before I coach on this. And what I've learned by being a coach for a few years now is the coaches, coaches usually coach on the thing that they continue to, and it's maybe struggles, not the word, but the thing that they're always still learning from. Because once you master an area, mm-hmm. they say you get bored and you usually change niches is what I've heard. I don't know if that's true or not, but it makes sense to me. Right? Yeah, right. And I, I can buy that for sure because it's certainly why I focus on coaching weight loss because it is the primary focus in my personal life as well. But I will say that I have, and I'll use that word struggle again, but struggled with money um, my entire adult life and probably even, you know, from my childhood as well. But I have lots of, you know, shame um, and embarrassment and guilt around how I've managed money in the past and even how I manage money now. And the way I deal with that is to simply just ignore my finances and defer them off to my husband. And I think a lot of women probably find themselves in similar situation that they just don't even know where to start when it comes to managing your mind around money. Yeah, you, you you sound like a very typical client. 
people ignore it for sure. They're like, well, if it's not really there or I don't think about it, it's like out of sight, out of mind, right? And then, like you said, there's a lot of shame and guilt about money. It's just, there's just so much. This is what I like to say about money. And maybe I'm curious because we've talked before about money and, you know, dieting or food, weight loss. It's like when I define money, it's like, it's just a tool and use it to exchange for value. Like you want something of value to you. So use money to exchange for it. And anything else is drama. There's a lot of drama around money. There, there is a lot of drama because I think of, like, when I think of money, I hear my mom saying, money doesn't grow on trees, Michelle. <laughs> you have to work hard for your money, Michelle, right? I hear all of these. And, you know, I've, my husband has ideas around um, money as well, that it's evil and rich people are bad. And, you know, when you internalize these statements for a lifetime, it's really no wonder that we have all sorts of these um, negative emotions and fears and anxieties around money. I mean, you pretty much nailed it. Between the guilt and the shame that you have, and then your your partner says it's evil and it's, you know, <laughs> all that stuff like that. Those are like the top, I mean, those are, those are the things that people believe and that's what society tells us from like a very young age. So what's the solution? How do you get around that? Good question. How, how, how do you even get yourself in the mindset to stop ignoring your finances and, and take a good look at it? Well, the first step of, I think, anything, and this is probably what you teach your client, the first step is always just awareness. Because I think mm-hmm. we're so used to thinking about money the way you just described that we, we've sort of accepted that's just the way it is. Like, that's it's just a fact of life. Money doesn't grow on trees. It's hard. Got to work hard, you know, to be rich. Having a lot of money is not good, but we should have enough so we could do X, Y, and Z. And you just kind of accept it. It's like status quo and you don't question it. But when you start questioning it, you know, and it comes into your awareness, you're like, wait a minute. Is it true that money doesn't grow on trees? Is it true that you have to work hard for money? Like most of us just don't question any of those things. So awareness is always number one. Just like, what am I actually believing about money? And then like start questioning it. Are any of these actually true? What if it's not true? But people don't usually do that because you don't usually question things that you think are true. No, no. And I think particularly when it comes to women and money, um, there's there's almost a societal expectation that we're not associated with money. Similar to weight, there's just the societal expectation that um, if we are to be accepted or have value in society or be labeled as beautiful or even worthy, you have to be in a thin body or you have to you have to conform to our society's standards of beauty. And I think that there are at least there's at least an unwritten curriculum out there that says women maybe shouldn't be successful and perhaps women shouldn't have lots of money as well. I wonder if that's sometimes where some of the guilt and shame comes from, you know, particularly when I look at um, female physician colleagues um, who do make more money than um, many other women um, out there and just their even reluctance to talk about it. Yeah. So there's a lot that you said. So Number one, I just, as you were talking about sort of um, current society norms of what beauty looks like, you know, right now, thin is what we're told is beautiful, at least since I was young. Mm -hmm. 
but it wasn't always like that. And so I was just like, oh, that's interesting because I feel like people always want to be rich. I don't think there was always a time where, and I think, I don't think there was a time I could be wrong where not being rich was the same as being rich. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And, and, and I think you're totally right. Yeah. Because, uh, if you look at, you know, sort of the old depictions, older depictions of women, they were on the larger size, like that was considered beautiful. And so it's interesting how now it's swung the other way. Although now I feel like it, it's funny, right? Because I just did, I did Carl Lowenthal's, you know, advanced vacation feminist coaching. And it's like, you really can't win because if you're too skinny, people will be like, you're too skinny. You need to eat more. But then if you're like overweight, then you're like, you need to lose some weight. So it's like, is if there's a very narrow window of like, of where we could be weight wise, right? Right. And you know, this, I don't know if you've ever read the book Burnout um, by the Nagoski sisters. No. Um, they're twins, but um, they wrote this fabulous book on um, kind of the science and the biology behind burnout, specifically as how it relates to women and how we tend to be um, trapped in the human giver syndrome, where oh, totally. we feel that our role is to constantly give, 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 and that we don't even know how to receive. Um, and that's it's interesting because they don't talk about money specifically in the in the book, but that concept is: is it even difficult for women to receive money if we've been kind of like brainwashed by the world that we're meant to give to our jobs, our families, you know, and everyone else. It's an interesting point. I think all of us could definitely work on receiving everything, like even even compliments, right? right? So like even earlier when you were <laughs> saying those things to me, like I think even like a few years ago, I would have, if you notice when you compliment someone, they usually deflect it. Some They usually say something to kind of deflect it. For sure. Like, oh, like if you, for example, if you told me, oh, that's such a nice dress. I'm not wearing a dress. Let's just pretend I am. You know, people will say, oh, I got it on sale or, oh, this thing. Like, it's just very common for women to do that because I think we're, we're, we're really horrible at receiving. We are horrible at receiving, right? And the other thing that related to this that the Nagoski sisters bring up is this concept of the bikini industrial complex, hmm. um, which I find fascinating because they liken this to, you know, big oil or big pharma or big tobacco, where there is an industry out there that benefits from women being perpetually unhappy with their bodies. Oh, of course. Right? So <laughs> That's what fuels the diet industry. <laughs> right? It, that's exactly what fuels the diet industry, right? And so, I mean, it's no wonder that um, no matter how hard you work to fit whatever ideal is in vogue in society at that time, it's just never um, going to be enough. Yeah, 100%. And you and I have talked previously as well about um, seeing a relationship in women between overeating and overspending. And I know I for sure see this in my clients and and often what happens and and we talk all of the time about this concept of buffering and using food to to be sort of emotional anesthesia, you know, so to speak. And what I often see is women will, figure this out in terms of food, but they will shift right on to buffering with something else. And overspending is almost always the next thing. And so do you have any advice for women out there who notice that they're doing online shopping or spending money to, to buffer emotions that are a little bit uncomfortable for them? 
Yeah. Well, the good news is it's the same skills that you teach your clients about overeating. It's like the same skill set, but this time it's just looking at the action is spending money versus putting something in your mouth, but the emotions are the mm-hmm. same. So it's basically, you got to allow yourself to feel that desire to buy. So I like to spend money <laughs> and I'm just laughing. I, I, I like to, I like to spend money too. <laughs> I love this. Yeah. So I like to buy things online all the time. It's not, it's a, I wouldn't, I think I do tend to overspend, but I'm okay with that. It's like having that, you know, desire to buy something and really want it. Okay, I have an example because actually there was something I didn't buy the other day, but I was about to, and I, I, I didn't buy it. Like I kind of let myself sit with that restlessness of actually not buying it. Cause I think it's like, mm-hmm. once you decide you want something, whether it's to shop or to eat, you're kind of, it's like you close the loop by actually spending the money or putting the thing in your mouth. Exactly. And so it it doesn't feel good to not take out that, to not like follow through, <laughs> I guess is the best way to say it. So the skill is basically to feel a little, to me, it feels really restless. Yeah, that's a great word, restlessness. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like yeah, this like unsettled, unsettled feeling that would be settled if I just click the buy button. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And what's what's funny is when it comes to food, I wouldn't call it restlessness. Like I know with my own experience, when I'm um, sitting with an urge or a craving for something sugary, um, it's extraordinarily uncomfortable. It's mm. almost physically painful. And a lot of women will explain similar physical feelings when it comes to food. And I think part of the issue is we learn how to sit with that emotion and process through that emotion. And I agree with you completely that it is a restlessness or an un, like a more of an unsettled um, anticipatory sort of feeling that I get when I'm, uh, you know, pulling out the credit card. I don't even pull it out anymore because <laughs> everything's saved on my computer. Know, I just, you know, I, I think you're right. It's the same work that we have to learn how to sit um, and really process through that restlessness um, that we feel as well. But, you know, when you think about it, you feel just as soothed from making the purchase um, of this beautiful thing um, that you do, putting the chocolate in your mouth as well. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting because I feel like I have an overeating issue, but probably very different from your clientele. Like I don't have a sweet, mm-hmm. I don't have a sweet thing. I'm not a snacker. I think where I get into trouble is I just really love good food and if I'm eating something delicious. And I guess I tend to I, I like sweet stuff too. Don't get me wrong. I do like I just don't yeah. crave it as much as other people. If I'm at a restaurant, for example, and it's available, I will order it. But at home I don't mm-hmm. have them, so I don't eat it. But if I'm eating sure. pasta or pizza, like, you know, it's like, oh, I just want to have more. And it's not even because, like, even if I'm, even if the hunger has passed, it's just more like, oh, I just want to taste that food. Mm-hmm. So, so it's a different sort of experience for me, I guess. Like, that, that's, that's what I, you know, tend to struggle with. Right. And it's, food is inherently difficult this way, actually, because... Our brains are physically hardwired to require some desire for food. Right. So if you're not, if you don't feel some sort of satisfaction from the meal that you've eaten, um, your hunger hormone systems aren't really um, in tune. So you, you don't necessarily get the I'm full, I must stop now signal from your body um, if you're not enjoying the food. So there's actually a requirement to 
enjoy food. And when you are eating foods that you really enjoy and you're getting that dopamine hit, um, it can also be very difficult to stop, right? And that's that's really the challenge with food um, is that there are so many um, biological and emotional systems in the body that that come into play and it can be very difficult. But I think that it is a healthy approach to food is allowing yourself to enjoy some of the things that you love. I think when it becomes unhealthy is when you're using the food to buffer or you're eating the food not necessarily because of the enjoyment of the food, but because it's numbing you out from something else. And I think that's a really good point, Michelle, because I don't think, at least like in my I think at one point I probably was using it to avoid stuff, but I don't think it's, it's not, I definitely buffer. I just don't buffer with food. So I don't want people to think right? like, no, and- I buffer a lot. It's just not food. <laughs> <laughs> well, just because just you're human, yeah. we all buffer, right? But I think the same is probably true with spending, right? And that if you are, if you've saved up some money to buy the Gucci bag and you love this bag and, you know, Maybe you have some emotions about spending that much money. Fine, right? But I think that's also different than feeling out of control with your spending simply because you're spending to buffer. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's not the action. Yeah. It's kind of like why you're doing it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's would be very much a new concept to many women to spend time thinking about how they think about money versus the, you know, the spreadsheets and the budgets, right? Because I, I think that's what most of us think about when we we think about managing your money or, you know, addressing your your money issues. I mean, that's really the most important thing is like, I like to start from, honestly, I like, I like to just assume nothing because most people don't even really understand what money is. Like if I ask someone like, well, what exactly is money? It's kind of like, I don't coach on relationships, but sometimes I do. And it's like, what is that? What exactly is a relationship? And people always look a little like confused. Or like, because mm-hmm. people don't really think about these things. Right. And so when I like to really distill money into like the, the most neutral definition, like it's just a, t- it's a tool. So we use to exchange for value. And then, mm-hmm. then they look even more confused because people have so much drama around it. Mm-hmm. I think it's like we have to, I think it's important to unpack that drama. So like the negative emotions you mentioned, like shame and guilt, and it's not good to have. And I think as female physicians, it's almost like, I don't even want to say double-edged sword, but we do make a lot of money compared to most people. And we're in a profession where we help people. And many of us become moms. And so what and what that means is women were conditioned to like say, give, give, give. So we're giving at work. And then if you're married, you're giving to your partner. And then if you have kids, you're giving to your kids. And there's like really nothing, nothing left over, but not even that. We're not even like prioritizing ourselves as someone, like we don't, like you said, we're, we're bad at giving to ourselves and receiving that ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so if you had a woman come to you with concerns about the circumstances of their their finances currently. Where would like let's just take for an example. Let's just say somebody has a significant what they define as a significant amount of credit card debt. How would you start to coach them through that? Yeah, so it's really just 
getting to the neutral facts of the matter, because I say money is a tool and debt is just money that you bought. So therefore, debt is also a tool. Most people don't think of debt as a tool. They think of it as bad. And then credit card debt especially has a bad connotation. Like, oh, you shouldn't have it. That means you did something bad or, you know, like you overspent, but in a bad way, right? Whereas Mm -hmm. buying money for education or for like your car or home is like acceptable, right? So it's just like Mm -hmm. unpacking what is good debt or bad debt. Why, Why is debt even... Well, it's like people think money is bad. So the same kind of applies to debt. So just getting really clear on what the definition is. And then people usually have thoughts about their credit card debt. And they're not like happy Mm -hmm. thoughts. They're like, I'm bad with money. How did this happen? I can't believe I did this. A lot of shame or even guilt. And that depends why they went into debt, right? Because there's different reasons to go into Mm -hmm. credit. You know, it could have been an unexpected expense versus overspending, right? So I think depending on what, why they ended up in credit card debt is ends up being a big factor. So it's really unpacking all of that. And then it's just like, okay, now what? Right? Because I think, well, when I say now what, because most people then say, well, I should pay it off as soon as possible, right? And then we have to unpack that. Why do you think you need to do that? Because most people are told that debt should be avoided at all costs and therefore it should, you should want to pay it off at all costs, right? Kind of like Dave Ramsey style. And so I'm not saying you shouldn't pay off the debt quickly, but I just, I I really just slow down or try to slow down my clients in terms of like, why, why, why? And the thing is, people are like, well, isn't that what we're supposed to do? And that's kind of like the answer to most things, right? It's right here. It's so true. And I heard you say this previously. I don't know if it was maybe on your podcast or somewhere, um, that debt really just being money that you've bought. And I I went to medical school late in life. I was 32 years old um, when I started. Um, and I really wasn't willing to give up the lifestyle that I had <laughs> previously to go be a student again. And so I racked up more medical student debt than probably was was average. I, I had $250,000 and I was 40 years old by the time I finished my five-year residency program. And at the time when I took the debt, I told myself, you know, this is fine because I'll be able to pay it off. No problem. <laughs> you know, when I'm done my residency and making money. And it just hasn't happened. And I'm, you know, I'm five years out um, of residency now, 45 years old, and still looking at two thirds of that debt, you know, still still sitting in my in my pocket. And when I look at the reasons why I took the debt out, you know, there's a little bit of guilt because I, you know, didn't have to live in the same place that I lived. I, I could have, you know, practiced a little bit more restraint with my money. Um, but I really resented the debt that I had in general. And as soon as I heard you say that debt was just money that I've bought, poof, like everything, you know, felt so much better. Um, and, you know, interestingly, I've, I've, I have actually paid more of that debt down um, in the past few months than I probably have the past year. Um, don't know how that worked, but there we are. Yeah. So everything you said, so first of all, I, I don't know if you know this, but I was 27 when I started medical school and I was 38 when I finished residency. It would have been 35, but I don't know if you know this, but I didn't get into dermatology until the third time I applied. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So, and the reason why I'm like, people can't see me, but I'm smiling only because I just feel like once you don't get into residency a few times, like any rejection or failure afterwards doesn't feel as bad. <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. <laughs> 
<laughs> I can understand because the stakes seemed so sure. high back then. You know, I didn't have the I don't I didn't have the tools I had. You know that I have now. Then, if I did, I would have handled that that situation better. But yeah, I, I when people tell me about similar stories to what you just said, Michelle, about having mm-hmm. you know maybe more loans than they did because of X Y Z, or and I think the overall theme is it's not even so much that I shouldn't have it. It's like oh my god, it's so much. Or but I'm this mm-hmm. age now, and I I should have mm-hmm. more money saved or whatever in their investments. And that, but the under underlying, I guess, thought error, or I like to call like, I don't know what you, what word, it's like a core limiting belief or like the, the, mm-hmm. sure. Right. It's like the main belief that's yep. keeping them stuck is the only reason why people say that, in my opinion, is because they have this thought error that it takes a lot, it takes a lot of time and effort to have and make a lot of money. 100%. 100%. I think most of us hold that limiting belief for sure. Yeah. And so if you, it makes sense. If you think it takes a long time to make money to have, because like I see these memes all the time about compound interest, right? Actually, someone just posted the other day. So I'm not going to, these people aren't bad. I know, I know they mean well, <laughs> but there's just so much messaging out there that you got to like start <laughs> early. You got to, but if you, you know, if you, if you're a baby and you put a thousand dollars away by age 65, you'll be a millionaire. And they're like, they talk about the magic of compound interest does work. It does require mm-hmm. a lot of time, but it's like people talk about it as if that's the only way to make money, and it's not. Right, it, and, and, and it's not, but we do have this very narrowly defined concepts of how we can make money and what we do with money when we get it, right? And it's, it's. I mean, you just even look, it's like you're ex- once you get married, you're kind of expected to buy the house and <laughs> have, you know, certain things and um, invest in very specific ways. And um, if you try to even do something outside of that accepted model, people look at you sideways and then you wonder, yeah, you know, what's going on? Especially if you make money in a very short time frame, then mm-hmm. it's clearly shady what you did to get that money. Right. And, you know, another thing is because I also grew up with that you have to work hard um, to have money and you have to suffer through your Ooh, work. That's a big one. To, yeah. to get money. Right. And I love my job as a physician. And I, for the first three years of my practice, I felt guilt with every paycheck, like tremendous amount of guilt. Um, and, you know, even here, because I'm not working hard and I'm not suffering because I go to work and I enjoy my job. Ah, got it. Yeah, right. So um, there, I had a spending problem in the first couple of years um, out of my residency because I felt bad holding on to the money. Right. Yeah. So even just doing thought work a- around around that and and reminding myself that um, I deserve to be fairly compensated for what I do in the emergency department. Um, you know, it's a difficult job and it's a demanding job and I earn that paycheck that comes to me, um, even if I don't suffer. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? You know, it's funny. Um, I haven't yeah. coached on that specifically in a while, but I knew, do know that there are lots of women and men included that associate mm-hmm. money with suffering. Yeah. Probably how people grew up if there was a lot of suffering in the family because of money, you know? Right. Or just, you know, there was, um, I grew up, we certainly weren't um, 
wealthy by any means growing up, um, and I always had what I needed to have a happy, healthy childhood, but only just, <laughs> only just. And it was always kind of made clear to me that um, all I could ever really expect was what I what I only needed to survive to live, and that anything more than that was bad. Yeah. So it's yeah, it's 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 hard to face a lifetime of of conditioning and listening to these these ideas and find a a solution to to separate yourself from them. And I think you're right. We go way back to to the beginning of this conversation when it all starts with awareness. And I think it really starts with women, just like when we take a step back to look at why we're overeating or why we're using food to buffer, um, really taking a step back and even examining how you think about money and what your beliefs are about money and how that might be um, manifesting in your life. Totally. If you were talking to a woman who had no prior concept of this idea that um, circumstances are neutral and we then apply meaning to them that produce feelings in us that motivate us to take certain actions and someone comes to you absolutely um, immobilized because of fear around money, what would you say to them? What's, what's What's the thing that you would say to hopefully give them their aha moment around money? Hmm. I don't know if there'd be any specific thing. I think I would just, what we do as coaches, we just, we just, we just get really curious mm-hmm. about whatever they're saying. So since you mentioned fear, I'd say, why are you afraid? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think like with food, you can ask a woman, why are you eating? Right. And they can say, um, I'm hungry and that's fine. Or they can say, it's noon, therefore it's time to eat, right? Or they can say, um, I'm bored. I'm bored, right? Or what, whatever it is. Like, and, and that really helps us give insight into what they're thinking around food and why they're eating. Um, and we can get awareness from that. Um, how can you apply something similar in terms of your relationship with money and your finances to start growing that awareness around it? Yeah, I don't think there's like a similar analogy around money, but I think fear is pretty common around money. And mm-hmm. from the people I've talked to, most of the fear is around like losing money. It's basically around losing money because people think money, mm-hmm. if they have a certain amount of money, then they will no longer be afraid and they'll feel secure. And people usually have an idea of how much money that would be. Except that when mm-hmm. they get it, it just keeps moving forward. <laughs> right? Sure it does. And sure so it does. that's yeah. actually a perfect way for me to show them that it's not the money that creates security for them. Mm-hmm. Because going from your resident salary to your attending salary, usually it's a at least a triple, if not quadruple, mm-hmm. increase in income. And their mm-hmm. security and money usually gets worse. And what I usually tell mm-hmm. people is like money amplifies whatever's going on in your brain, going on in your brain. So if you have a lot of scarcity, Uh, meaning like if you always feel Mm -hmm. like you never have enough money Mm -hmm. and have this false thought that, oh, but once I have, I'm just picking a million dollars, once I have a million dollars, then I'm never going to, then I'm never going to worry about money. Mm -hmm. 
But it actually gets worse, and this is how it gets worse. It ch- the the worry changes from worrying about not having enough, then it becomes worrying that you're going to lose all the money that you have. Lose it. Yeah. Right. Okay. So if security doesn't come from money, where does it come from? It comes from your comes from you. And like it's kind of simplest to say your thoughts, but like it's this is probably really similar to what you work with your clients. It's like it comes down to it's like a combination of self-worth, self-trust, and self-love. And like, I call that concept wealth Mm. confidence, but it's really a combination of those three things. Like having Mm -hmm. like full trust in yourself, security comes from like you, like knowing no Mm -hmm. one or no thing can provide security for you. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you have to feel Mm -hmm. safe in your own mind and body, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I love that term, wealth confidence. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. But I think, you know, you're you're absolutely correct because if I look at even just my circle of friends in my life, um, very broad um range of incomes, really, um, amongst them. And some of my friends who make the least amount of money actually do enjoy the most amount of security. And people who make a little bit more, and I include myself in that category, um, feel terrified um, about their money situation all of the time. Um, And so it is not the amount of money you have in your bank account um, that brings that sense of security at all. Yeah, I wish it was true. (laughs) Yeah, I wish it was true too. (laughs) Because then we could just get there and never have to think about it again, right? Right? But Bonnie, life is never that easy. It can never be that easy. I've been at my goal weight and I definitely didn't feel better at that weight. No, well, but but see, and this this you bring up like an excellent point, right? It's we do that, right? We say we will be happy when we're in a size six or we weigh a certain amount or we have a certain amount of money. Um, and then you reach that milestone and you still don't feel good about yourself because it's not about the externals. It's not about yeah. the amount of money in the bank account or the size. It's it's all the, those three things that you identified as as being wealth confidence. They're, they're what give body confidence as well. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, Bonnie, before we end today, do you have any wise parting words? Wise parting words. More like a, (laughs) I wouldn't even call it call to action, but it's really fun to be rich. And so I say that to, I don't even know if the words inspire, but it's like, I think every woman should want to be rich. It's fun. Right, right. You know, and I heard you say that, Bonnie, and I felt terror. <laughs> I felt terror. So I clearly still have work to do around this. Um, I may have to hire you to coach me through my own money stuff, but I love that. Um, you know, being rich is fun. Women should be rich. Yeah. I, well, I think a lot of women don't allow themselves to even want to be rich. So true. I feel like women want to be thin. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. But a lot of the times they're wanting to be thin because they think they have to be to be loved or got it. Yeah. Or feel worthy. Right. Um, I think that's that's the difference there with with body and money. But for sure. Thanks for doing this. Well, thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming. 
If you are as inspired by Bonnie as I am, you can find her on both Instagram and Facebook at WealthyMomMD. You can also head on over to her website, WealthyMomMD.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Do you see any similarities in your relationship with food and money? Find me on social and let me know. Coming up next week, we've got another great interview for you. We're going to explore how Cogno movement can be used as a tool to address issues around body image and emotional eating. I am super excited about this one. See you then.